0: Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you with hearts full of gratitude for your word. Father, we come expectant. Father, we desire to hear from, from you. So, Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Father, give me boldness. Father, give me clarity. I ask that you would keep me from error. Father i pray that the uh trouble that i feel in my heart that you would calm it Father i pray that uh you'd give me the wisdom to say things that are right and true and good and father may all of this bring glory to you and father i pray that uh That your word would find good soil in our hearts this morning. Father, we want to see it spring to life and bear fruit in our homes and marriages and at work and in our neighborhoods. Father, we want to see you do a work of spiritual renewal among us. So, Father, I pray that you would do that. Do that work in our hearts this morning. Father, we ask all of these things in the name of your Son and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. In the fall of 1955, five missionaries Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, and Roger Udarian made contact with a tribe in Ecuador known at that time as the Alcas. Alca was the Quechua word for savage. The actual name of the tribe was Huarani, which just meant the people. The missionaries contacted them by lowering a bucket with gifts from a plane that was piloted by Nate Saint. They lowered shirts and knives, and an aluminum pot. On January 3, 1956, Nate Saint landed his Yellow Piper cruiser on the bank of the Kararai River, about six miles from the Wawarani jungle clearing. Several uneventful days at camp followed a single, seemingly friendly visit by three members of the tribe. On Sunday, January 8th, Nate Saint and Pete Fleming spotted from the air a band of Warani on a trail headed to the camp. Nate radioed his wife, Marjorie, and he joked, looks like they'll be here for an early afternoon service. He promised to transmit a radio update to her at 4.30 p.m. Well, that never happened. The band of Wurani speared to death all five of those young missionaries. Those men came to be known as the Auka Martyrs. And of course, the story doesn't end there. Two years after the killings, Jim Elliott's wife Elizabeth and Nate Saint's sister Rachel hiked into the tribe and began ministering to them. The gospel was proclaimed. Killers became Christians, scriptures were translated into the Barani tongue, and the account inspired an army of Christians to enter the mission field during the second half of the 20th century. Elizabeth Elliott left the tribe in 1961. Rachel Saint stayed with them for all but five years of her life, and she died in Ecuador in 1994. I share that story for two reasons this morning. First, our psalm, Psalm 96, is a call to engage in world missions. It's much, much more than that, but it certainly isn't less. It is a call to declare the glory of God to all the nations. We have a task, a commission, if you will, as followers of Jesus, to proclaim the gospel of the glory of God to the ends of the earth. And that mission, brothers and sisters, is not finished. The best estimates suggest that there are on earth about 17,400 distinct people or ethnic groups. Nearly 7,400 of them are classified as unreached. That means that within the group, there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize them without outside assistance. These unreached groups account for more than 40% of the world's population. That means that there are billions of people that still, 2,000 years after the resurrection, do not have access to the good news that Christ died to save sinners. That's the first reason. Psalm 96 is a call to missions, and that task isn't finished. Second, as I was working on this message, I stumbled onto something that Pete Fleming wrote in his diary several years before they made contact with the tribe. In the entry... He expresses the ache of his heart to reach the Warani people with the gospel. But then he gives us his motivation. He tells us what was driving him and it's compelling. Far more compelling than missions as mere obedience to the great commission. He penned this entry during 6 months of Spanish language training in Quito, the capital of Ecuador. He wrote these words, I am longing now to reach the Aukas. If God gives me the honor of proclaiming the name among them. You can hear the words of Psalm 96 in his writing. Proclaim the name among them. I would gladly, he wrote, give my life for that tribe, if only. And here's here's where he Tells us what was driving him, if only to see an assembly of those proud, clever, smart people gathering around a table to honor the sun. Gladly, gladly, gladly. What more could be given to a life? What was driving his mission? It was worship. He would gladly, and note the joy in his. Mission, he would gladly give his life if only to see an assembly of Walrani gathered around a table and worshiping the sun. It is a God centered vision for missions, and it cuts very close to the main point of Psalm 96. So, as excited as I may get about seeing the gospel spread among the nations, that's the sermon I wanted to preach this morning. This morning's psalm is not first and foremost about world missions. It's about worship. The worship of the reigning king, King Jesus. John Piper opens his little book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, with the same concept. He puts it as plainly as I've ever read. Listen to him explain the relationship between missions and worship. Missions, he wrote, is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God... Missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions. Because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. That is what the 96th Psalm is about. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad. If they cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Missions begins and ends in worship. When the flame of worship burns with the heat of God's true worth, The light of missions will shine to the darkest peoples on the earth. We mustn't forget that as we work through this morning's passage. So open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 96. And I think you'll find that seeing the whole passage on a page will be more helpful than the one verse at a time on the screen. Psalm 96 is a song of praise. It has been called a grand missionary hymn. It is likely that King David wrote this song. We read in 1 Chronicles 16 that David appointed a song to celebrate the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. You guys remember the scene. David was dancing like a wild man, and his wife was not too happy with him. Well, in verses 23 to 33 of 1 Chronicles 16, we find that it's nearly word-for-word Psalm 96. So this psalm may have been part of the larger song written by David for that occasion. As for structure, there's a debate. Spurgeon said that it should be taken as a single unit. Some interpreters say that there are two natural divisions, others say three, and you'll notice that the ESV breaks it into four sections, but we'll go with three this morning. If for no other reason than some of you came expecting a three-point sermon, and that's what you're going to (laughs) get. The first division is found in verses 1 through 6, and it is a call to worship the Lord, because he is great. That is, he is majestic and strong and beautiful, and therefore we must worship him. The second division is verses 7 through 10, and it is a call to worship the Lord because he is the king. That is, he reigns supreme over all the earth. And the final section is in verses 11 through 13. And it's a call to worship the Lord because he will come and he will restore justice. This psalm is a universal call to worship with reasons why we should worship this great God. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. Worship the Lord, brothers and sisters, for he is great. The first three verses here are full of action. We are to bless. We are to tell. We are to declare. But the psalmist opens with a triple command for us to sing. Verses 1 and 2. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. With each repetition, David includes the one to whom our praise must be directed. We are to sing to the Lord. The object of our worship is none other than Yahweh Himself. Josh taught us this last week. When you see Lord in small capital type, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh, the personal covenant name of the God of Moses how He revealed Himself to His people, and how He was to be known by His people. There is something relational and intimate about singing to God using His personal name. Yahweh is our God. We are His people. Yahweh and no other God could be the object of our worship. And what is it that we are to sing We are to sing to him a new song. Nothing stale for this God, nothing fusty or musty, nothing tired or worn would be fit for a king like him. He is too majestic for the mundane, and he is too holy for the common. New songs were typically written in celebration of the latest victories in battle for times when God showed His favor to His people by delivering them from the hands of their enemies. But a new song was not merely a new set of lyrics or a new tune. Even the words of this psalm were used previously to celebrate the return of the ark. Rather, a new song is a fresh response from the heart of the worshippers to Yahweh for new mercies. New mercies that come like never-ending waves on the shore of the sea, day after day and night after night. The steadfast love of our God never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. The object of our worship, then, is Yahweh, and the content of our worship That is, our praise is a new song, a fresh response to the endless displays of God's goodness to us. In the second half of verse 2, David makes a shift. He goes from the vertical to the horizontal, from Yahweh to the nations. Verses 2 and 3 tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. The worship to which you and I are called is to proclaim the greatness of God to the world. People of God, declare His glory to the nations. We do that so that they can join us in the joy of worship, and God gets the glory. Tell them how He saves. Help them see that His marvelous works are awesome and worthy of praise. The word tell in verse 2 is translated into the Greek with the same New Testament as evangelize or proclaim the good news or the gospel. It's impossible to miss the connection here to evangelism and missions. What the psalmist calls God's salvation in verse 2, he refers to as God's glory in His marvelous works in verse 3. Charles Spurgeon preached it like this. God's salvation is His glory. The word of the gospel glorifies Him, and this should be published far and wide to the remotest nations of the earth, Have known it. To go further, we are to proclaim this good news, verse 2 says, from day to day. That is, it is to always be upon our lips. And this is fitting because this good news never grows old. Other news, said an English Puritan, other news delights us only at the first hearing. But the good news of our redemption is sweet from day to day. In the words of Martin Luther, Christ is now as fresh unto me as if he had shed his blood but this very hour. Declare the glory of God among the nations. But why? Why worship in a way that offers new songs to him and that enlists new worshipers him from among the nations? Answer, because Yahweh is great. Verses 4 through 6. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength And beauty are in his sanctuary. I cannot do better with this than the prince of preachers. Our God is no petty deity. Presiding as the heathen imagined their gods to do over over some one nation or one department of nature, Jehovah is great in power and dominion. He is great in mind and act. Nothing mean or narrow can be found in him or in his acts. In all things, he is infinite. Praise should be proportionate to its object. Therefore, let it be infinite when rendered unto the Lord. We cannot praise him too much, too often, too zealously, too carefully, or too joyfully. He deserves that nothing... In his worship, be little, but all the honor rendered unto him should be given in largeness of heart, with the utmost zeal for his glory. The other so called gods of the people, they're worthless, but not our God. Crafted by human hands, their gods have eyes, but they can't see ears, but they can't hear. They have arms, but they have no strength or ability to save. What a joke when compared to the Almighty who spoke this universe into existence. Idols are nothing. Our God, however, is great, and therefore, worship Him. All of creation, from subatomic particles to supernovas, Testify to the greatness of our Creator. The heavens declare the glory of God. The Scriptures also declare His greatness from cover to cover. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth psalm 47 there is none like you o lord you are great and your name is great in might jeremiah 10 now that's our first point worship the lord because he is great and therefore greatly to be praised point number 2 worship the lord because he is king he reigns supremely over all things verse 7 ascribe to the lord o families of the people ascribe to the lord glory and strength ascribe to the lord the glory due his name the first section began with a triple command to sing to the lord the second begins with a triple command to ascribe or to give glory To Yahweh, to ascribe glory to the Lord is to acknowledge and to delight in and to praise and to proclaim His perfections. It is in the words of the old confession to proclaim that God is but one living and true God. He is infinite in being and in perfection. His essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. He is a most pure spirit. He alone has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. He is immutable. He changes not. He is immense, eternal, incomprehensible, Almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. This God is amazing. And the confession goes on. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. For his own glory, he is most loving. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is long-suffering. He is abundant in goodness and truth forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. He is most just and terrible in His judgments. He hates all sin, and He will by no means clear the guilty. And that description is beautiful as it may be, but scratches the surface of the perfections of our God. To delight in these excellencies... And to praise Him for them and to proclaim them is to ascribe glory to our God. But our worship is not merely lip service. Verse 8, we must bring an offering and come into His courts. What is more fitting for entering the presence of a king than to bring an offering? Well, this reference is curious. The doors to the tabernacle and the temple were closed to Gentiles. The very nations being addressed here, they were unclean. And the full meaning of this would not come until centuries later. The author of the book of Hebrews explains, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, Not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption, Hebrews 9. And what about those offerings? Well, a few chapters later, He tells us, through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God, Hebrews 13. It is through Christ, then, that we have access to the presence of God, unlike the Gentiles in the tabernacle and the temple. And we ought not, as Spurgeon said, to come empty-handed into the presence of our God, enjoined as we are to present ourselves and all that we have as a reasonable service unto Him. Verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. We are called to worship in the splendor of God's holiness. This holiness is the beauty of His divine nature. Jonathan Edwards helps us here. God's holiness renders all His other attributes glorious and lovely. It's the glory of God's wisdom that it is a holy wisdom and not a wicked subtlety or craftiness. It makes His majesty lovely and not merely dreadful and horrible, that it is a holy majesty. It's the glory of God's immutability, His unchangeableness, that it is a holy immutability and not an inflexible obstinacy in wickedness. Our God is holy. And he is separated from every profane thing. He is also averse to all impurity of sin and devoted to every form of moral purity. So by worshiping him in the splendor of holiness, we too must be holy as he is holy. The splendor of God's holiness should cause us to tremble like Isaiah before the throne. It is a profound awe in the presence of the Holy One that causes the body to quake. And I'm not talking about what the Quakers do. To bow down and worship is one thing. But to be so overcome and shaken to the bones by the holiness of God speaks of an altogether different intensity of worship. An experience most of us have not known. And here we see that even the nations, all the earth, are called to worship in this manner, to bow down awestruck and in submission before this great king. It is not without reason that he is called the king of kings. And it is not without good reason that he is called the Lord of lords. All the peoples of the earth and all the kings of the peoples must acknowledge that He is the sovereign King. He is the King of kings. And that's why we declare in verse 10, we declare among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. The phrase, the Lord reigns, is at the heart of this psalm. It sits at the core of the truth of the gospel. Is the foundation of the gospel kingdom. Jesus prefaced His great commission by announcing that all authority in heaven and on earth was His. He is supreme. He is the King of kings, and therefore we must worship Him. That is our second point. The psalmist hints then, In verse 10 at our third point by mentioning that the king we worship was the king that established the world and sustains it to this day that is unless the sovereign unless he sovereignly wills otherwise the world cannot be shaken as the right of a sovereign over his subjects he will judge and as the way of a good sovereign he will judge justly That is, he will restore justice. So, point one, worship the Lord because he is great. Point two, worship the Lord because he is king. And now, verses 11 through 13. Let's worship the Lord because he will come and he will restore justice. Let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For, and mark that word for, because He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. The scene here is of a worldwide celebration and why because the lord will come if we learn nothing else from this passage let it be known that true joy true true joy that results in worship and rejoicing and singing like we see creation doing cannot be known apart from the presence of god Commenting on this passage, John Calvin went so far as to say, it is impossible to experience the slightest measure of true joy as long as we have not seen the face of God. Those words alone, He comes, should cause our hearts to leap within us. That is our only hope in this life. But the sentence didn't end there, did it? The Lord will come and He will judge the world in righteousness. The worldwide worship that sprang from these words, the text says, brought gladness and rejoicing and exulting and singing for joy. But that is not the normal response to hearing about judgment, is it? The thought of judgment usually inspires fear in us not joy. So what's happening here in this psalm? Well, in this psalm and in the psalms in general, judging the world in righteousness means that things that are now out of order will be set in order. They will be made right. Chaos will be brought to an end, and order will be restored. Hence, the rejoicing. That is why we rejoice. Because the king is coming to set things right. The picture here is of all of creation rejoicing at the coming of this king. It is a worldwide celebration. From the heavens to the earth to the depths of the sea and everything in between, all of creation rejoicing at his coming. The reason for all this joy is because the king is going to set it free. He's going to make things right. He will come and he will restore justice. Creation, no longer tainted by the curse, will be the springboard for impassioned worship. For the creation was subjected to futility, wrote Paul to the Romans. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Jesus also used the image of a worshiping creation. As he came near to Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, a multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They were worshiping the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Oh, but some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And what was his answer? I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Well, in Psalm 96, it's not just boulders, but all of creation cries out in worship to the king who will come to finally and forever restore justice. So as we bring this to a close, I want to make sure that we have not lost sight of the main point of Psalm 96. This psalm is a universal call for us to worship. It is a call for the people of God to worship King Jesus It calls us to sing a new song to Him. It calls us to bless His name. It calls us to ascribe glory to Him. And it is a call to tremble before Him, before His splendor and His majesty. It is also a call for the people of God to rally other worshipers from among all the peoples and usher them into His sanctuary, that is, into His presence, into the presence of the Almighty to worship. Let us tell There's that word. Let us tell our neighbors and the nations that the Lord saves. Let us declare His glory to the ends of the earth. And may our hearts burn to see His mighty works declared among the remaining 7,400 unreached peoples. God has worshipers among them. Oh, to see them assembled and to worship around the throne. And let us say to the nations, our Lord reigns. And this psalm is also a call to all people and to all of creation, from the heights of the heavens to the depths of the Pacific Ocean and everything in between, to rejoice, to be glad, to roar, to exult, and to sing for joy. Why? Because Jesus is great, because Jesus is the King, and because Jesus came. In many church traditions, traditions that use the liturgical calendar, this psalm is read and preached every Christmas in celebration of the coming of the King. Jesus came, and He will come again, and He will restore justice. And that, brothers and sisters, is worthy of our worship. I believe that if we were to get this Main point, right, if the worship of King Jesus became the defining desire and drive of our very existence, well, evangelism and world missions would be little more than a joyful call of one unworthy worshiper to an unworthy fellow human to come and drink, to taste and see for themselves the greatness and the beauty of our King a call for them to crush their worthless idols and to bow down and tremble with joy before the King of Kings. If we had this right, like the mission statement painted on our lobby wall says, if we were passionate followers of Jesus, we would say along with Pete Fleming that I am longing to reach, and you can fill in the blank, my coworker, My sister, the Luhar people, the Han people, the Kurd, the Afghan. I'm longing to reach them if God gives me the honor of proclaiming the name among them. I would gladly give my life for them if only to see them gathering around a table to honor the Son. Gladly, gladly, gladly. What more could be given to a life. That is the kind of worship, brothers and sisters, to which we have been called. Let's pray. Father, we we want to worship you like that. Father, we want to enlist worshipers from among all nations. Father, forgive us for Lip service and for half hearted worship. Oh, Father, we are not as passionate as your glory would demand. Father, we want to sing to you. Father, we want to call all the nations to sing to you. Father, we want to worship you because you are great, because you reign, and because your son came. He'll come again. And Father, we look forward with great hope to him restoring justice. Father, all glory to you. Father, as we worship, Father, may it be an offering that's pleasing to you. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Let's stand.